Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm so happy to see so many of you here this evening. Um, I'd like to um, acknowledge that two of our board members are here tonight, Pat Lasher. Where are you, Pat? I see you back there. And um, Dr. Alan Jensen over here. And um, we appreciate their support. Um, please pick up a copy of our calendar on the table before you leave so that uh, you'll see we have lots of other great things happening here and we'd like to have you come back. Um, this evening I'm, I'm pleased to turn the podium over to uh, one of um, the Pratt Library's friends who is also a friend of Ronald Rossbottom, Ross um, John Talbot. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Dean Rossbottom. Um, when I went to uh, school to learn how to introduce speakers, uh, aside from the fact that they told you not to read the bio because that forces you to buy the book, um, I'm, uh, <laughs> that, um, and you re read all about New Orleans, Princeton, Sorbonne. <laughs> Uh, 25 years at Amherst, uh, including being dean, and now in a named chair. But that you should do three things. One is um, contact uh, about the uh, subject, contact about the speaker, and then get the hell off the stage. Um, the, uh, the subject is a very interesting one. I mean, hundreds of books have been written about uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, uh, Patton, Montgomery, and so forth and so on. The people in politics and the military in World War II and what happened. Very few books have ever touched on the lives of ordinary people. Um, last week I was reading a book called The Boys in the Boat. It's a book about um, the, um, you all know that, the Olympic um, 1936, Hitler's Olympics, Goebbels' Olympics, uh, Lenny Rushtow's Olympics, uh, Jesse Owens Olympics, and how um, this group of eight uh, ordinary, ordinary boys uh, from Washington uh, beat the best in the world. And uh, those people they beat in the other boats from uh, England, France, uh, Germany, and Japan, they later fought with and against. Um, but they were ordinary boys. And to talk about what life is like uh, to ordinary people through uh, their experiences in World War II is, a, is, is truly unique, which brings me to Ron um, and, and my personal connection with him. He's a very thorough, very meticulous, very um, exacting person. And uh, I had, uh, Sue, my wife, and I had lunch one day uh, in Paris with a, a friend of 50 years uh, who uh, told us about her parents and reminded us that they were in their 90s and that they had uh, lived through the war as um, interns uh, in uh, pharmacy. And uh, we mentioned this to Ron a couple days later. And Ron immediately went, up, went and uh, interviewed them for a whole day leaving them a set of questions that kept them occupied for the entire summer. Uh, and uh, 
in uh, the words of my friend, kept them alive a lot longer uh, than that. Um, so I think what's interesting is that we've got an extraordinary book about ordinary people, and so I'll leave it to Dean Rossbottom to read some excerpts. Ron? Well, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, thank you, John. <laughs> um, we met uh, We met at Talbot's. My wife is a food writer. In fact, one of you took cooking classes with her when we lived in Columbus. And she's a cooking teacher and a food writer and has published, uh, she's now working on her 12th cookbook. Um, and um, that's how we met. We She heard about John Talbot, who's known in Paris as the expert on all new restaurants. And so you go to a restaurant with John and everybody scurries or scared to death you know they're spilling food all over you because they're afraid they're going to offend him um but it was a friendship that was formed around food and and um and also martha hill whose husband uh gary uh, just came up one night in a restaurant we were having fun um until until he came up no we were having fun um <laughs> With a, a bunch of friends, and Gary, who um, was a professor too at um, at Johns Hopkins, right, a, as well as Martha, who was a former recent dean of nursing, uh, came up and just introduced himself, and um, and started a friendship that um, uh, lasted um, lasted until his death, and um, that's what happens in Paris. That's one of the interesting things about going there, especially Americans. For some reason, they they feel that. They would ignore you, never speak to you if you're in a restaurant in America or Baltimore or someplace. But in Paris, people come out, just come up and start talking because they want to talk to you about the experience of living in Paris. It always will come back to where do you eat, where do you live, how long have you been here, often do you come. And uh, I uh, fell in love with Paris as a young student and, and um, have been going there for 40 years. Uh, and... <clears throat> When I stopped being uh, an administrator and reversed the lobotomy I had to have to be an administrator, <laughs> I uh, I became a professor and of, of European studies and started teaching a course freshman on the history of Paris in the last hundred years, and and it slowly dawned on me that there was this four-year period because when you go to Paris, if you how many of you been to Paris, so you know good. How many of you knew Adolf Hitler? <laughs> he was a character, wasn't he? Uh, yes, I know. You're old enough. Um, you know how many those markers you see around Paris that so-and-so died here during the liberation, and you see uh, signs here and there. And I got more and more interested in what it have been like to have been a Parisian and to have... I lived during four years of occupation by a hated enemy. An occupation, by the way, that no one expected to last four years. They thought maybe a year, um, because certainly uh, Hitler was going to continue to win. Uh, the British would sign an armistice like the French, and he could then move, as he, we now know he was planning to do, against Russia. But Churchill refused to Signed an armistice, refused to give up, and as a result, Hitler had to keep 
his troops, large number of troops in France. But he was lucky because there were a lot of very influential and strong-willed French fascists or, or quasi-fascists who, uh, uh, the only country uh, during the war to sign a peace treaty with Germany uh, were those who later became known as the Vichy government, the Vichy France. And they signed a treaty to end the war, and the man whom they chose to lead the country was a man named Philippe Pétain, who was a war hero. Um, it was a, He was sort of the equivalent of Dwight Eisenhower, say. Um, the only trouble was that he was slowly losing it, and by um, so he wasn't on top of everything. As a result, the government was run by, even though he agreed to a lot of very dastardly, uh, uh, um, very bad things, the government was run for the most part by a group of very right-wing, very anti-Semitic, not all of them, but very right-wing, very patriotic Frenchmen. They were patriotic. Very few were pro-Hitler per se. They thought that Hitler would bring a kind of stability to Europe, and France would come out of it being a partner, as ironically happened uh, and has happened since the war, being a, a partner with Nazi France. So the result was that France was divided in half, essentially. Paris <clears throat> was in the northern half, which was controlled by the Germans, and Vichy, the town where the uh, the French state uh, remained, was in the southern half. And for two and a half years, there really were two states. And the Germans needed two states because they didn't have enough troops to patrol France. If I had a map, I could show you how France is a large country and has an enormous coastline, Atlantic, North Atlantic, Atlantic, Mediterranean. And so it needed, it needed the support of these um, right-wing, um, very conservative uh, um, um, uh, Frenchman. Um, nevertheless, uh, when pa Paris, um, I'm trying to think of how much history to give you. Let me say one more thing. Um, Hitler invaded Poland in September of 39, and within a month, Poland was defeated. France and England... Um, supported Poland, had treaties with Poland, but they didn't do much to help Poland. And for the next eight months, not much happened, except on the periphery of Europe. I mean, Germany invaded um, Denmark and Norway, but basically there was a, what they called a phony war. And then suddenly in May of 1940, the Germans attacked through Belgium and Holland and within six weeks defeated what many people thought was the strongest army in France, which was the French army. They had an enormous amount of materiel. They had the Maginot Line, which had run from the Alps almost all the way to the um, English Channel. Um, unfortunately, they were led by idiots, and the result was they were defeated in six weeks. Six weeks. No one could believe it. Um, the roads of France were suddenly filled with soldiers and civilians running south because the Germans were advancing. And so it was filled with Belgians and Dutch and then later French. And uh, the roads were clogged. The, the army couldn't maneuver. And by on June 14th, which is only about five and a half, six weeks after the invasion, not even that, 
<clears throat> a month after the initial event, Paris fell without a shot being fired. Not one shot was fired. Now, why was that? Because France, was, at first, the French wanted to defend Paris. They had defended Paris successfully in 1914. They had, the Germans had never taken it in 1914, nor in 1918 when they could have. They almost did. Um, and finally, two days before the end of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, two days before uh, the Germans uh, um, invade, walked into Paris, Paris was declared an open city. What that means is that the French agreed with the Germans, we won't defend it if you don't bombard it. They were really very, very much afraid that Paris would be bombarded. So the Germans walked in to a almost empty city, because three-quarters of the Parisians had fled south, and a city that had not been touched by bombs or artillery shells. Walked in. The, all of the newsreels showed them walking in. These newsreels were shown all over the world. The world was stunned that Paris was suddenly uh, controlled by the Nazis. The swastika went up everywhere. German signs went up everywhere. Um, the German language was suddenly uh, the second language of France. Um, the Germans were brilliant in using propaganda to show that they were going to take care of Paris. They wanted to send a signal to the rest of the world, and especially to London. We're peaceful. We're going to take care of this beautiful city. It's, it's part of the um, international patrimony. We'll take care of it. Um, they were also going to rob it blind. But they... Um, they um, kept the bordellos open. They kept the the clubs open, the jazz clubs. They kept the cabarets open. Everything that was forbidden in Germany and the rest of the um, major cities they had taken, they kept open in Paris. They wanted Paris, they wanted the world to breathe a sigh of relief, but the world was still holding its breath as they watched um, the Germans march in. And the... Um, this was in June of 1940. Later that year, Jerome Kearns and Oscar Hammerstein wrote a song called The Last Time I Saw Paris. It's a beautiful song. People still sing it. It suddenly became the most um, sung song, the, mo the best seller in Europe. In, in, England, in, in English-speaking countries in America, Kate Smith, Anne Southern, everybody, it was in a film. And that's where I, I took my title from, because let me just read to you the, um, the last verse, and listen carefully. These were very smart men. Now, realize that the Americans did not have to leave Paris. They weren't, we weren't at war with Germany for another 16 months. We, a lot of Americans, stayed in France, because we weren't, Hitler didn't declare war on us until um, right after uh, Pearl Harbor. So there were Americans who stayed. They may have left temporarily because no one knew what was going to happen, but they came back. So they and so the Americans were, and of course, as you know, by this time Paris was the most written about, filmed, painted, sung about city in the world. Everybody knew Paris, even if they hadn't been there. All the song, all the stories about the boys who'd been sent over uh, during the First World War, um, you, you know, you can't keep them down the farm once they've seen Paris. All this kind of the, 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 the jazz age, uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, 
All of these stories had come back. Paris, even for many people, many people hadn't been there, but Paris was a magical place. And so these two men, um, very intelligently, wrote a beautiful song. I'm not going to sing it for you. You're welcome. <laughs> I wish somebody could. It's a beautiful song. But listen to the lyrics and listen how smart they are about what people were worried about. What happens to a city that looks the same, nothing's changed, um, but isn't the same? The song was in fall of 1940, sometime in the, they had taken the city, yeah. So it was 4041 that the song was very popular. And um, the, the, the uh, you know, the comfort of habit had disappeared. Everyone was living, uh, for, how long will it last? By the way, you have to realize that we now see the Nazis through the lens of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. At that time, people saw the Nazis as just simply, you know, fascist brutes, but not the, the not the, the racial fanatics that they were. Um, they knew the Jews were being harassed, but they no one thought about the final solution. But still, Hitler was seen as being generally speaking, somewhat like as, as a dictator and a brute, but still not the Hitler that we've come to know since then. So here's the song, uh, part of it. A lady known as Paris, romantic and charming, has left her old companions and faded from view. Lonely men with lonely eyes are seeking her in vain. Her streets are where they were, but there's no sign of her. She has left the Seine. The last time I saw Paris, her heart was warm and gay. I heard the laughter of her heart in every street cafe. The last time I saw Paris, her trees were dressed for spring, and lovers walked beneath those trees, and birds found songs to sing. No matter how they change her, I'll remember her that way. I'll think of happy hours and people who shared them and those who danced at night and kept our Paris bright till the town went dark. And that's where I got my title. So even then, the idea that somehow Paris was there but wasn't there. It was, you could still see it in newsreels, but these Germans were, soldiers were there. They marched every day down major streets. They had orchestras that played in all of the public squares two or three times a week. Very very good orchestras, by the way. Um, the German, as I said, the German language was everywhere. So what I want to do is figure out what it was like to get up every morning and have to worry about going to school and going to work because the cars, the automobiles, were all confiscated. They bought everyone's automobile that was at least... Um, um, three or I think three years old, and older ones were confiscated. No one could drive a car unless they had special permission. Doctors and German officers, uh, collaborators, etc. The bicycle became the main means of support and walking, and the metro. The problem with the metro was they didn't have enough electricity for it to run all the time. So it was constantly crowded, constantly crowded, stuffed, and unpredictable. So every day, 
when you got up, you had to think about everything from how to get to work. And this is if you're a Gentile. Forget it. If Or, or a Frenchman. If you were a refugee um, socialist, a communist refugee from, from Europe who'd, who had fled Hitler, and certainly if you were a Jew, you, um, you had more to worry about. Uh, but French Jews generally didn't worry too much because they were French. And the Republic would protect them, and they had they had fought for in World War One, and they'd been there for three and four and five and six generations. In fact, French Jews thought the only Jews who would be in trouble or deported. And by the way, no one was talking about death camps at this time; just deported or put into a, a, um, a concentration camp, uh, which is just simply a camp of huts with barbed wire around it, where people will be kept uh, prisoners. Um, for a while until they could be deported, um, the French Jews said, "Well, poor Polish and German and 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 Russian Jews, um, but they won't touch us." And of course, the Germans immediately asked everyone who was Jewish to go sign up to put their to sign up their name, where they lived, French and other Jews. The Vichy French insisted that all the laws anti-Semitic laws they passed applied to French Jews as well. Um, French Jews were a little safer, but not very much. But still, they weren't bothered too much. The only roundups were roundups of of Jews who were um, uh, foreigners. I want to read you one passage about one... Um, um, my book is not just... It has a chapter on the, Jew, on the Jews. It has another chapter on Germans... Um, and I'll read from that in a minute, what it was like to be a German occupier. Because I was interested in what was it like to be there as a young German boy, for instance, who was not a Nazi and who had just been drafted. But this uh, story um, was told to me by a friend, and it, uh, it was about his father. And um, in May, June, um, 19... Uh, I wonder if there's a light on here. There is a light on here, but it doesn't do anything. Oh, wait, here we go. Here it is. By, I know, excuse me, this is better. By, in May, June 1940, as Germans raced to Paris, French and foreign Jews felt especially vulnerable. Most stayed put, praying somehow that the French government and its Republican traditions would protect them from Nazi racism. But a few read the writing on the wall more astutely than others. One was a Jewish diamond merchant, and this was the father of my friend, who turned out to be a very reputable historian at, the, at, at Berkeley. One was a Jewish diamond merchant whose family had been French for generations and who was prescient enough to understand that not only was his business about to suffer, so were his wife and children if the Nazis instituted their racial policies in France. He had quietly procured exit visas for his family, and had hired automobiles to drive them from Paris to the, to the Spanish border in safety. One major problem remained. Border guards all over Europe had discovered how easy it was to demand bribes from fleeing Jews and other hunted persons, and the merchant knew that he would not be able to successfully carry his valuable stock of diamonds over the border. And it was only a big handful, but a big handful of diamonds. He had to leave them hidden in Paris. But where? Taking a rather risky chance, he decided to rely on a friend, 
a soccer buddy from his VC years, a Gentile. And this happened often. Um, often people, individuals would, don't worry about that, uh, and individuals would um, have to make these small ethical decisions all the time. Um, um, do I teach my child how to counterfeit food stamps? Do I cheat in the metro? They used to cheat in the metro because the tickets were expensive, so they, they would fill the holes that were punched. In those days, they punched the holes. They'd fill them with biscuits so that you use them again. And, and you read about these children learning to cheat. And, and um, should I help a Jewish family? Should I help a family whom I know is a communist family? Should I? Every day there was some kind of ethical decision. This is one of the things I try to teach my students is that, is that how fortunate we are to live in a society as, as much as we complain about it that is not forcing us every single day to question um, uh, even in the smallest detail um, our, the, the, our, our, our values. So he went to his friend who was a Gentile, and the plan he devised was audacious. Heating up a large amount of lard-like unguent, he poured the mixture into a tall, clear jar, and then he dribbled the clear, precious stones into the liquid, constantly stirring it as it cooled so that the gems would not settle to the bottom. Soon the concoction congealed. From the outside, the suspended diamonds were invisible. He arrived at his friend's home holding the apparently innocent bottle as if he were carrying a child. His friend welcomed him with the warmth he had expected. After they worried together about the current state of Paris and France, the diamond trader said, I must leave France for obvious reasons. I'm unsure about when I'll be able to return, but I do know that I would like to have this jar of a family remedy, an unguent for all that ails you, waiting here for me. It means a lot to my family and to our memories. Could I ask you to keep it? Bemused, his friend accepted the consignment, probably relieved that the request was as simple as storing a bottle in his cupboards. The merchant left, unburdened but apprehensive. Had he outsmarted himself? Should he have told his friend what the jar contained? But more immediate concerns dominated. Fortunately, the merchant's escape with his family was a success. Making their way into and across Spain, they set sail from Portugal for the U.S., where they remained for five long years. Around the dinner table, hundreds of times, the family wondered about that apparently innocuous bottle sitting in a dark cupboard back in occupied Paris. In early 1946, when our merchant could finally return to the city, he found himself once again in his friend's kitchen. For a while, they exchanged stories of the war years. After a bit, the Jewish friend broached the subject that had preoccupied him for half a decade. Do you recall that jar of unguent I left with you in June of 1940? At first his friend looked puzzled. Jar? Unguent? And then he remembered what had not crossed his mind since his friend had left. Getting up from the table, he rummaged around in a remote cupboard, mumbling, I oh, sure hope we didn't throw it out when we moved things around during the war. The merchant politely waited, his guts in a knot. Ah, <laughs> oh, I found it, I think. Is this it? Oh, yes, the merchant said, holding it once again as if it were a fragile Ming vase. Now I have a story for you. Could you light up your stove and get me a sieve and a pan? 
and soon the contents of the jar were bubbling away over a low flame. Taking the sieve, the merchant poured the pot's contents into another container, and there, nestled in the mesh, was his diamond reserve, the gem sparkling as if they had never been covered with animal fat and salve. The grateful merchant selected the brightest, largest diamond from the pile and handed it to his speechless host. Take this one for your dear wife. Uh, I love this story. Um, and I've heard so many stories like this of, of, of gambles that people have taken, even from hiding people to hiding diamonds. Um, that couple that John was talking about who were in their 90s and were young pharmacy students who are now in their 90s and were young pharmacy students in France told me um, the... the um, the, the the wife told me that her at the uh, suddenly there was a knock at the door in her apartment house, and the Jewish family on the uh, on the floor below had come up and brought all their uh, all their valuable furniture and all their valuables and asked her to keep them, because they had to leave. And and she said I will. And they never came back, and she didn't know what to do. And she spent years after the war not knowing what to do. Do I sell it? Do I give it? What do I do with it? These stories appear. There were other people who would steal. The minute the Jew, Jews left an apartment, they would steal immediately. They'd move into the apartment, steal, take over the apartment. There, a lot of apartments, I don't know if you know this, but the French government owns a lot of apartments in Paris and gives them over to, uh, generally speaking, to uh, ministers and sub-ministers. A lot of those, a lot of those apartments are uh, apartments belonging to Jews, having belonged to Jews who never came back. Never came back. Um, so the, but it wasn't just it. It wasn't, as I said, it wasn't just Jews who suffered. Young communists, communists suffered, socialists suffered, pe people who were in the resistance, young people especially joined the resistance. It wasn't a very powerful resistance. It wasn't a very effective resistance. The Germans were never bothered by the French resistance except just a few weeks before D-Day when they re they really were very helpful to to Eisenhower and Patton. Uh, and uh, the um, basically speaking... They were so good at counterintelligence that they could keep control of the resistance. But in, in the early days, it was mostly kids who were on the walls. And you can imagine what it was like to have a teenager. Imagine a teenager. You, you have enough trouble with teenagers now in normal times. Imagine you have a teenager who suddenly says, I hate the Germans. So uh, Jean-Pierre and I are going to go out and write all over the walls, Viva de Gaulle. Or they'd stand up in class and say something uh, uh, against Hitler. And the parents were constantly telling them, you know, please, please don't get us in trouble. Don't slip and say, yeah, my parents have a radio and they listen to a station from London that comes in at 9 o'clock every night. Um, these are the kinds of things that people were having, having to worry about. But the Germans were having to worry, uh, too. And um, so... They were, one of the things, Hitler came to, had never visited Paris in his life and never came back, but for three hours he flew into Paris two weeks after the Germans took it and took a trip that you would take if you had three hours to kill in Paris between flights, 
went to all the monuments, the Eiffel Tower, the most famous picture of Hitler during this period is standing in front of the Eiffel Tower that was shown all over the world. It just offended so many people. It was like a tourist. A picture in front of Napoleon's tomb, a picture in, at Montmartre, and he stood at, at Montmartre and he looked down on the city and he said, I've saved this city, I will save it for the world, but Berlin will be greater in 25 years. And the Germans used Paris as a propaganda engine. While they were robbing the French, while and after the Gestapo and the SS moved in, and while they were arresting and, and, and deporting uh, Jews and, 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 and socialists and leftists, they were still promoting to the rest of the world that they were taking care of Paris, that you could still go to jazz clubs. They even let the most famous jazz guitarist of that period was a man named Django Reinhardt, who was a gypsy. They even let him play while they were murdering his relatives in Eastern Europe. Um, Africans and African-Americans who stayed were playing in the jazz bands. They kept all the bordellos open, and they assigned bordellos to different officer classes. You know, they had Luftwaffe officer bordello, and they had a Wehrmacht, uh, uh, you know, um, non-commissioned officer bordello, and they had an SS bordello. That was that must have been an interesting bordello. And they and uh, and they had lists, and they made sure that the girls were healthy, and they made sure that the, um, they were petrified of um, of any kind of disease the Germans were, but especially venereal diseases. Um, and one of the stories I wanted to read is about a woman, a marvelous book that I read, a woman who ran a bordello, uh, a French woman who ran, uh, ran a bordello. Um, I say bordello as if <clears throat> everybody understands what that is, and I'm sure you all do, but I was speaking to a bunch of students at Dickinson College yesterday, and I... S- <laughs> saying bordello and I noticed this look on their face and so finally I said a house of prostitution and they still look at me like uh, (laughs) but houses of prostitution were legal in, in France until after the war they were legal and and one of the best ones the best known one um was called the 122 it was called, in English, they used the English term, one to two, because it was at 122 Rue de Provence in the 8th arrondissement. And it was the classiest bordello. And it was won by a woman named Fabienne Jamais. And she wrote her memoirs after the war. Of course, the problem when you're doing research like this, it's very important, if you can, to get diaries that were written during the period and then the person died or something so they couldn't change it. Because after the war, no one's a Nazi. Everyone's in the resistance. So you have to be very careful about reading. But her memoir is still very funny, and I want to read you a, a passage. So this bordello was cited at 122 Rue de Provence in the chic 8th arrondissement. It was known throughout Europe, not just as a bordello, but also as a meeting place for the city's cultural elite. Soon after its opening in the 30s, it had become the place where the upper-crust bohemians had gathered. On the first floor, there was an elegant cafe where drinks, especially champagne, were served to the sophisticated clientele, male and female, whether they were looking for sex or not. 
and most knew of the lavishly decorated rooms on the floors above, and I've seen photographs of them, designed as harems, jungles, Roman baths, and so forth. As one climbed from floor to floor, the more refined the sexual offerings became. Having fled her business during the exodus in June of 1940, Madame Jamais returned to find the bordel still operating, albeit filled with German enlisted men, all wanting to taste one of Paris's most famous delicacies. And she writes, The Germans had requisitioned the 122 and had installed themselves there the very day of their entry into Paris, as if we had been as well known as the tomb of Napoleon at the Invalides. And it turns out that the tomb of Tavoyan at the Amelie was the most popular visiting place of all the Germans. Hitler had promised every German who fought in France and, and every German who fought at least a weekend in Paris. I'm not sure he was able to do that, but many, many. Paris became sort of like Bangkok during the Vietnam War. It was an R&R. To have a leave in Paris for a week or, uh, or a weekend or so um, was... was um, was a great deal. The, the Germans also gave cameras to all of their soldiers and little um, albums uh, to keep the photos in and encourage them to take pictures of Paris and send them home. You can still find, they're rare and rare because a lot of families have destroyed them, but uh, you can still find on uh, eBay these little uh, albums of tourists. They were tourists. In fact, the, the French laughed all the time the way they laugh at the Japanese and Chinese tourists who are always taking pictures now at the Germans as if they had the, the lens. Uh, they were little, beautiful little Leica cameras uh, glued to their eyes. Um, so, where was I? So she came back and and um, she was um, not amused uh, that they were looking at her bordello as if it was as famous as the tomb of Napoleon. And rather than be relieved that the Germans had allowed her establishment to reign open and in business, Jamais was furious that this high-class establishment had been invaded by common soldiers, men who could never have afforded to patronize the place before the war. She marched down the Rue Aubert to the Place de l'Opéra, where the Commandature de Grosse Paris had set up its offices. This was the bureaucratic machinery that ran Paris, and she asked to see a high-ranking administrator and, surprisingly, was quickly received. She ran a very high-class establishment, she told the bemused soldier Democrat. It was known throughout Germany and had even received many German aristocrats and businessmen before the war. She was appalled that it now would serve only enlisted men, for her more respectable clientele would now no longer come. This would be, she exclaimed, a disservice to the occupation and to herself, of course. This brings up the question, is was she a collaborator or an accommodator, which is a big question. Did she, you know, many people criticized her after the war for running a bordello that catered to German officers. Other people said, you know, keep them in bed with our French girls and they won't kill us. Um, politely, the officer assured her that she would hear from his office within a month. A mo and we noted he did not jump up at Nazi Hara and say, get another job or get out of my office. He treated her like a businesswoman. A month later, she received a note stating that henceforth the 122 would be accessible only to German officers in uniform. 
At first placated, Jamie soon realized that this restriction would not provide enough income to keep her establishment in the black. Many officers came and bought champagne and hired her girls, but even though the officers seemed to be everywhere in Paris, they were not numerous or needy enough to keep her business afloat. So she returned to the Commandanteur to plead that French men as well be allowed to return to the bordello. The idea that German officers would be rubbing shoulders in a bordello with the Parisians and French they were supposed to have under surveillance caused some consternation within the offices of the German authorities. Another month passed. Two Germans in civilian clothes, obviously Gestapo officers, appeared at the house's door and asked for Madame. They had arrived at a compromise. They told her French men would be permitted to come to the house but only when accompanied by a German officer. Now, I'm going to quote this. This is her language. And there's a word in here that's probably never been pronounced in this room before, but she wrote it. I didn't. <laughs> Are you joking, Inspector? Do you really think that every time one of my French clients wants to fuck, sorry, Mr. Pratt, he is going to go up to a German officer in the street and say to him, Captain, will you go with me to 122? I want to get laid. <laughs> this isn't serious. I'm ready to assume my responsibilities, but that goes for you too. At any rate, if you maintain this position, I'll just close. Four days passed, and another official letter arrived. Madame, from this date on, French citizens are permitted to enter your house Officers of the German army may only present themselves in civilian attire. And the bordello stayed open for the four years. And what's interesting is that after the war, I'm sure you've seen the pictures, a lot, there was this, there was this, um, this, this kind of massive guilt about what had happened. And as a result, a lot of women had their heads shaved who had fraternized. And fraternized didn't necessarily mean slept with. It just meant been friendly with, served uh, uh, in a canteen. Uh, uh, you know, it also meant slept with. Um, uh, and they had their head shaved. And sometimes they had swastikas uh, painted on their breasts. And they were paraded through the streets. It was a masculine thing. Men were never treated this way, only women. And, um, but prostitutes were never treated that way because they were... Um, honest workers. This was their profession. So not one prostitute had her head shaved when she paraded. Another interesting fact about this fraternization, there were about somewhere around 200,000 little Fritzes born in France during this period. They were called little Fritzes, even though some were little Fritzinas too, but they were these poor children who were immediately um, denied recognition, often by the French family, um, the father would go home or die in battle. Um, they were put out for adoption. And they are all roughly now in their 60s and 70s. And just a few years ago, they began asking for, neither government recognized them. The French refused to recognize them. And the Germans didn't recognize them. Um, even if they could prove who the father was, and often they couldn't prove who the father was. And so the governments finally had to pass a special law a few years ago in which gave, gave these uh, men and women citizenship, which hadn't been a big problem when they were working, but it became a problem when they were asking for Social Security and for, um, uh, and, and, and for uh, special privileges because uh, they had been orphaned during the war. 
so there was a lot of fraternization, but a lot of it was innocent. I mean, these were 17, 18, 19-year-old boys who were lonely, and um, they were not Nazis. Uh, they weren't brutes. Um, um, they were just serving a, a brutish, uh, a brutish um, regime. So this is what my book's about. I'm going to stop here because um, I have chapters on the liberation. I have chapters on what it was like to live in uh, departments, how, how the space closed in more and more. People closed off their apartments because of the heat. It was. Uh, whenever I interview anyone, first, they never want to talk about things I want to talk about. Uh, I learned. I learned that early on. You know, I didn't. I wasn't so uh, stupid as to say, "Well, what did you do during the war?" But I came close. <laughs> um, and I learned that you don't interview that way. You have to just listen, talk about the war, and listen. And usually, what they talk about is heat, cold, and food. It takes a long time for them to get to. Did you know a German? Did you? Were you friendly with your German? Do you have Jewish friends who suddenly disappeared? That kind of stuff took a very long time. This book has drawn a lot of attention, I think. I wrote it for Americans primarily. The French have been dealing with this. They're still dealing with this. In fact, it came up again during the Charlie Hebdo um, assassinations, the, the kind of um, um, still sense of collective guilt about what happened to Jews in France during the Second World War. But... Um, I've gotten, uh, I've received a lot of memos. Uh, a few people have sent me their memoirs that they only wrote for their families, and they read the book and they sent them to me. They're they're very uh, moving. I wish I had had them before I wrote the book. Um, I've had several people speak to me after meetings like this. Um, I've had two Jewish ladies come up and said I lived in Paris, I survived, and I asked them how, and they said luck and and nice Gentiles. A lot of Jewish children were protected by. Priests, nuns, Gentiles. The church uh, hierarchy uh, uh, were not nice, and uh, but the individual individual priests and nuns, Protestant pastors, Protestants, as the Protestants were incredible, um, and I, it's very moving. But one, one letter, I, I'll leave. I'll leave you with this. Right after the book appeared, I received this. In the end, <clears throat> I, I, the last chapter, the uh, almost last chapter, is who liberated Paris? Um, Eisenhower did not want to liberate Paris. He wanted to get to the Rhine, end the war by Christmas. He knew that if he had to liberate Paris, uh, once they broke out of Normandy, they it was like a highway. The Germans were very good at, in defense, but they were still retreating. Um, the Gaul blackmailed him, said, if you don't liberate Paris and don't let the French walk in and be the, uh, be the vanguard, which in itself is a funny story because it wasn't the French. It was really Spaniards who were in French uniforms, but that's another story. Uh, uh, I will call for an insurrection, and you'll have to do it because there will be thousands upon thousands of Frenchmen who will be killed by the Germans. And the Germans just wanted to get out, too. They wanted to get out. He wanted to go around it. He didn't mind if we had 10,000 older Germans in that city. He didn't mind it at all. He wanted to go around it. Finally, two or three days before the liberation, he decided we better take it. It, was, it, had, become such, it had become as important symbolically to him and to the Allies as it had been to the Hitler in, the, in taking it. And so they did liberate it, but the war lasted another 
what, uh, eight months. Battle of the Bulge may never have taken place had he been able to get uh, to the Rhine. So one of the things I say, who liberated Paris? So this man writes this letter. It's a handwritten letter. And it says, Dear Professor, and whenever they start that way, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> Not dear sir. It's dear Professor. Regarding liberators of Paris, you quote de Gaulle's entire speech where he says the French army liberated Paris. That is a perverted, inaccurate, arrogant statement. And you, who is not sure who really liberated Paris, you are a, and there's a blank line there. <laughs> but you have to realize this is one of the first letters I got after I published my book. The GIs in the 29th Division and other U.S. divisions who landed at Omaha Beach and had 36% casualties, they liberated Paris. Without their efforts, Paris would not have been free. The French army's contribution was minuscule and not crucial. I served as an officer with the men who liberated Paris, 29th Division, A. Girard, P.S., Yes, I enjoyed your book. <laughs> and then this is the really touching part. I have dual citizenship, U.S. and French. My father worked for Vichy. I was not proud of him. So he's writing his father. He's not writing me. It's really very moving. I found this, but anyway, thank you for your attention. I'd love to answer questions, so thank you very much. Yeah. Amherst Mom. Yeah. Um, we've read and, and seen movies that talk about how close the world came to losing Paris right at the end of the Right, right. Uh, did you talk to people about that experience? No, no, I read a lot about. I read. I read. A, uh, I'll repeat the question. We've heard a lot about. In fact, Mark asked me this before. It's Mark, right? Before the meeting, if I'd seen this new movie called uh, Diplomacy, which came out, some of you may have seen that. Uh, that the story about uh, von Schultitz, who was assigned to Paris by Hitler two weeks before the liberation, and was told, in effect, um, given what was called rubble orders, level it. Don't let the Allies take it. It was a very important city. It wasn't just a beautiful city. It was where all the railroads began and it had more warehouses than any place else in Europe. It was a very important. It had incredible uh, warehouses of food that the Germans were not using, uh, and and that's what enabled the citizenry to live after they they left. But um, he didn't have many troops. He had very few tanks. Um, all the main troops had, had left the SS the day he arrived in Paris the SS general walked in and said who had the best trained troops were leaving left so he had about 10 15,000 older men and um, he wanted um, but after the war he wrote his memoir in which he implied that he saved Paris that he defied Hitler Part of that is true. He could, I guess, if he'd worked night and day, blown up the bridges in the Notre Dame. Because there were um, 
um, munitions planted here and there. But his main interest was to get the hell out of Paris and save it, get the first get all the women auxiliaries out of Paris, which he did the very first day, and second to get the troops out. So that is a myth uh, uh, that this brave, courageous German stared at Hitler, and uh, it's not a myth that he probably could have done a lot of damage. But he was on his la- they were on his last legs by he when he took over. He arrived, it was pretty well over two weeks before. But boy, that is a myth. And people still say, oh, thank God for that German. Even the French believe that. <laughs> he saved Paris, and it shows, you know, let's have a European Union because there are good Germans. But it's not true. Yes. We'd like people to use the microphone. To yes, the microphone, right. Um, so I'm wondering whether uh, any French publisher is proposing to translate this into French. Uh, no, I get that question, too. The only people who've said that they want to translate this so far have been the Dutch. Hmm. And I don't understand that because they all read English. <laughs> and uh, Good point. And no one reads Dutch. Not even the Dutch read Dutch, I think. No one reads Dutch. Um, and you know what? I don't think that the French are going to publish this book. Uh, the French have already said a lot of the stuff I've said, but they don't like, uh, I don't think they're going to like an American, although there have been Americans. I don't know whether it's going to be translated or not, but I am, I'm fair to the French, but do they want another book by an American of all people telling them once again that they were, they weren't, you know, the land of liberty, equality, and fraternity? I don't know, but I'll be surprised if it's translated into French. Yes. Mr. Rosebottom. Rossbottom. Rossbottom. It's bad enough as Rossbottom. (laughs) I I tell people my name's Rossbottom. Professor Bottom, we're glad you're here this evening. (laughs) So, all right. Yes, sir. Sir. (laughs) Yes. Not professor. (laughs) My question is, when did Parisians first learn about the final solution and the camps? Um... About the same time that everybody learned about it, uh, there were escapees from those camps, and there were even photographs, a few photographs taken secretly, and the word got out. Governments didn't want to hear it. Uh, The American government was filled with anti-Semites, and they could care less about what was happening to Jews because they wanted to win the war, and there's a big debate about why didn't they bomb the the railroad to Auschwitz and that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that's something I don't talk about here. I think the biggest single mistake the Germans made in Paris was imposing the wearing of the yellow star. That was the biggest single uh, psychological mistake they made. That's when the French suddenly realized, wait a minute, if they can do that to my friends, I even know were Jewish. In fact, a lot of people themselves didn't know they were Jewish. But because the, the law said if you had two grandparents, one grandparent, the Vichy law said, Germans had, I think it was two grandparents, um, suddenly that yellow star begins to appear. And little kids were asking their mothers, because six-year-olds had to wear these stars, Mom, Mommy, what's a Jew? Why do I have to wear this? And they had to go to school and explain to their friends what a Jew was. That was done in 42. So I think it was around 42. The final solution where they were really begin murdering was in 40, began in 42, 43, about that time. The word began to get out more and more. Uh, but it took two or three years. What was the yellow star? The yellow star. The star of David. I got you. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the... Um, 
six-year-olds, and they didn't have little kitty stars. <laughs> so the six-year-olds had to wear the big stars that the parents wore. So if you've seen pictures of these little children with these yeah. stars, it, it'll break your heart. Yes, sir. We were, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Okay. We were in um, Champagne country not too long ago and went to Moet Chandon and a few of the other wineries. Right. And we saw where they hid the wines to protect them from the Germans. Were the Parisians involved in that trafficking of fine wine? Yes. The, the wine, there's a book called The War and Wine, which is a pretty good book. Uh, every uh, vineyard you visit in Champagne will tell you where they hid the wine. How many of them really hid the wine? I don't know. <laughs> The Germans were very smart about those vineyards, and they knew that they were a source of income. And um, every hotel in Paris will tell you, oh, but we we bricked up the basement. We just sold them the plonk. We sold them the junk. So sometimes that happens, but I don't know how much. If you go to, I, I, you know, choose any vineyard, and they'll tell you. Well, Mike Ranetti told me that they hid the really best stuff from the Germans. The Germans were smart as hell because they, they, too, were vintners. They sent German vintners to these uh, places to find the wines and everything. But wine was very important as a commodity and as, a, uh, as part of the treasury, and there was a lot of attention paid to it, how much of it was hidden. And, of course, there was a black market, and there were collaborators who made a fortune off of this, so... Parisians, too. Um, yes, sir, back there. Thank you. Um, I've read in several books that uh, the Vichy government uh, made extensive offerings of Jews over and above the quotas that the Germans were asking for during the, the period from 42 on. And I was wondering about that in, in your book and the mythology that de Gaulle, I think, fostered it after the war, that we were all in the resistance, and those are two different questions. But uh, yeah. and I'm uh, but but I'll uh, and, and I give brief answers to both. Number one, yes, the Vichy even went further than the Germans asked them to go. In fact, Pierre Laval said, "Send the kids with the parents when you send them off, because we want to keep the families together." And the Germans did not want the kids; they didn't know what to do with them. So every kid that was sent off, and there were two or three thousand, were killed, babies were killed. So, yeah, the Vichy, the anti-Semites, not all the Vichy people were anti-Semites, but the ones in control, and most of them were then, they were in control, were, 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 were terrible, terrible people, and they were trying to palliate the Germans so that they could wind up with a stronger France when the Germans finally went home as victors. Secondly, de Gaulle did. De Gaulle was afraid of a civil war, and he was afraid that the communists were going to take over. He was a right-wing man himself, but he wasn't an anti-Semite, and he wasn't a, a fascist, although Roosevelt thought he was. Roosevelt could not stand him and hated him, in fact. thought he was a fascist, argued all the time with Churchill, who defended him. But de Gaulle, who was a brilliant politician, um, realized right after the war that this country is on the verge of a civil war, so he creates this myth that France had liberated itself, Paris had liberated itself, and everybody was in the resistance, except for a few weirdos down in Vichy. Um, and and the French accepted that for about 20 years, and only in the 70s did the, story, the real stories begin to to appear. But it wasn't because... But he, he wanted... I mean, can you imagine what de Gaulle did? 
country defeated, signed a peace treaty with Germany, and winds up as one of the occupying powers, and it has a seat on the Security Council of the UN. I mean, that man was a genius. Um, but um, those are good questions, and, and, and you're right about both of them. Yes. Who, who else? Yes, ma'am. No, uh, the Vichy did though. Vichy, Vichy, Vichy uh, The question was: Did the Germans control the education and the curriculum of of of, um, uh, of school children or universities? And uh, no, they had other things on their mind. But Vichy did. Vichy wanted to. They they rewrote the whole curriculum. They taught. They went back to the. Uh, they wanted to go back to the. Time when the, when 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 the Catholic Church was powerful, when the state was uh, not secular, um, they were they were petrified of secularism, petrified of socialism, petrified of of the workers' movement and unions. And so, yes, they changed um, they changed everything, comic books, everything. But the Germans had more important things on their mind than to worry about what French children were being were being taught. But that's a good question. In other countries, I've heard, I don't know. But I've heard it in countries that where they really controlled every aspect of life, where they did not have a peace treaty. Yes, I've heard that in parts of Czechoslovakia, um, any part where there, any part of Europe that where there was a large number of German speakers, they did affect the curriculum. Yes. Uh, what about French fashion and movie industry? You know, it, it, kept, it, it kept it kept smuggled into the United States even. Yeah, the the that's a big question. Um, there have been a couple of books written about that. About uh, was it better, like Maurice Chevalier was accused of being a collaborator after the war? Was it better to sing for the French, but also the Germans, or was it better not to sing at all? Um, secondly, the Germans took over the French, the most powerful. Uh, production company was German run or run by collaborators they made some great movies movies were still the most popular form of entertainment it's the only place people could go to stay warm and they went there to see newsreels and so they were the Germans used uh, newsreels as propaganda but people started booing and hissing they put the lights up every time the newsreels came on but the fashion industry I mean they didn't have they didn't have silk they didn't have uh, rubber for shoes. They had to wear wooden soles. They didn't have, and they still kept producing beautiful stuff. And and um, uh, Goebbels wanted to move the fashion industry and the film industry, the center of it, which had been in France to Berlin, but it never never caught on. So yes, you. It, uh, there was a show in Paris recently, and there's been a couple of books written about that, about the fashion industry. You'd be surprised what they made clothes out of. And the women, as you know, a French woman can, you know, take a piece of paper and put it behind her ear and look fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, yes, sir. You probably have seen the movie about the art that had been stolen. Yes. Uh, there must have happened in Paris. As well, right, right. Oh, yes. They knew, the Germans knew every rich, especially the Jews, every rich Jewish collection, and many of the, the biggest um, uh, galleries and collections were Jewish on the Rothschilds, but there were others. They knew them. They were there in five minutes after they walked in, and they took the stuff out. Theoretically, they were against any kind of modern art, jazz, any kind of modern art whatsoever, and they burned a lot of it, but they kept a lot of it. Uh, Goering loved modern art. Hitler 
didn't. Hitler had no taste. Goering had some taste. Goering went 20, 25 times on his private train to Paris to take this art that they'd taken from galleries and taken from collectors. The French had moved a lot of stuff out of the Louvre and museums before the war to protect it in case it was bombing and to hide it from the Germans. The Mona Lisa moved all over France um, and hidden in chateaus and things of that sort. But the Germans were great looters, and especially anything that could be seen as having a provenance from Germany or a German-speaking um, um, uh, country, they would take back. And and um, Hitler wanted to build the best museum in the world in the town of Linz. And those pictures you've seen about the Monument Men, which is an awful film, but the story's fantastic, is true. They hid, they hid hundreds of thousands of artworks all over Germany. And thank God most of them were saved. But yeah, art, it's funny about art and wine. They knew what, cult, they knew what made a culture. They knew what kept a culture together. That's why they were so violent against Jewish uh, institutions, synagogues, graveyards, Torahs. They were so violent against all this stuff because they knew you destroy a culture by destroying its history and its artwork or controlling it in some way. Very, very smart. Hitler learned all of that from Napoleon. Napoleon was the greatest looter of uh, Western art until Hitler. Most of the art in Louvre was looted by Napoleon. Yes. Any more? Yes, sir. Let's yes, ma'am. Hey, Mark. It was the same. All Jews were fired. Uh, all socialists were fired. All communists were fired. You had to be very careful when you taught courses in philosophy or history because you could be reported. There were little fascists in the classroom. They would march right down to headquarters and say, you know, uh, Professor uh, Rosenbottom uh, is uh, is is uh, is uh, um, is ruining our youth, and he would be fired or or what have you. So yes, um, but it was usually the French who did that. It wasn't the Germans? Yes, there were some more. Yes, sir. Let's make this the last question. Okay. Oh, I love this. The 29th division. I'm sorry. The 29th division came out of Baltimore, Maryland. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, you know, (laughs) this guy is from Baltimore. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I looked him up. He had an address. I should have written him. I've read this letter so much. He had an address. It's not on here, but I looked it up on, you know, on Google. I Googled it, and it's a retirement home somewhere in Maryland. And I started to write him, but I was afraid that he would write me another letter. Thank you very much. There's a local historian who actually writes oh, oh, about yeah. it. I'll get, the, I'll get you the name. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'll be glad to sign the book if you want to buy it. The Ivy Bookshop is out in the hall with copies of Professor Rossbottom's right. book, and he will be signing them up in front. <laughs>